Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This, of course, is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and this is a B-side episode. Before we get into it, just our normal quick housekeeping and then some other housekeeping, so don't skip the housekeeping. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon, wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps the show get in front of more people. We are on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod, and I'm at DJ L-O-U-A-E-X-A-V on Twitter and Instagram. Merch, the Niche Legend Dad Hat. I now have numerous versions of this. I've got a worn out version. I've got a sleeker, newer black version that I wear for fancy occasions. Anyway, get your Niche Legend Dad Hat at poppantheonpod.com. And of course, join our Patreon, where we are doing at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. This week's Pop Pantheon All Access Patreon episode was an additional listener mailbag episode. We got so many incredible mailbag questions that we decided to do more episodes of answering your questions on Patreon. And God, they're so interesting. It was so much fun. These episodes are so great. You can get access to our incredible Discord channel, which is just ballooning and growing into something more and more fabulous every minute. That is at patreon.com slash poppantheon. And... For my last two housekeeping notes, we have Gorgeous Gorgeous, my queer pop party happening on both coasts in the coming weeks. The LA installment is happening tomorrow at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. That is August 25th at Resident. It is very nearly sold out. And if you want to come, I recommend grabbing a ticket in advance. And on September 16th is our second Gorgeous Gorgeous New York. I am so excited about this. So if you are a New Yorker, queer, queer ally, lover of pop music, lover of this podcast, please come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous New York at the Sultan Room on September 16th. The link for tickets to both of those parties will be included in the show notes of this episode. And I'll obviously keep reminding you about New York. Last piece of housekeeping. We will be taking next week off from new episodes, but we are going to be publishing something that I think you guys will really enjoy, a special little treat. So tune in next week. There is going to be an episode and some stuff you might want to hear in that episode. That's all I'll say for now. And we'll be back to our regular scheduled programming starting on September 7th. So today's episode is about Jack Antonoff. Obviously a huge point of discussion amongst the pop music community over the last 10 years. He has produced music for so many of our favorites, especially female favorites from Taylor to Lana to Claro, Lord, St. Vincent, the chicks, the list really goes on and on and on. And he is in some ways a beloved figure, someone that is seen as a champion of women artists, someone who allows for a lot of our alternative pop favorites to be the masters of their own destiny in the studio as playing a supporting role in a way that many other pop producers historically have not, sort of the anti-Dr. Luke figure. And then in some ways has become a subject of ire in recent times for his overuse, perhaps, by this certain community of female artists and his utter ubiquity in the field and a feeling that perhaps he is grown stale or that many artists overuse him and should move on from him. And that has drawn criticisms of his work in general and what his work does whether it's actually good or effective, what it says about the state of pop music in general. And a few weeks ago, Mitch Thoreau, who is a PhD candidate at Stanford, wrote an incredibly well thought out but very controversial piece called Antonification that was kind of diving into why perhaps Jack Antonoff's music is perhaps more insidious than we may realize on the surface. So I invited Mitch on the show. I thought the piece was really fascinating. And I think the whole discussion about Jack Antonoff is incredibly interesting and worthy of discussion. And I think will be of great interest to listeners of the show to talk about Jack Antonoff, what he's good at, what he's less good at, what Antonoffification means exactly, why there's this fatigue, why he's celebrated, what his production exactly does and is, what his specific brand of production is, and what it all says about the state of pop music and pop stardom in general. I loved this conversation. It was one of my favorites I've had in recent memory, so I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Here is my conversation with Mitch Thoreau. Uh-huh. 
All right, I'm here with writer and PhD candidate at Stanford University, Mitch Thoreau. Mitch, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. Thrilled to have you to talk about a topic that I know is of great interest to many of our listeners and to many on the internet and to many pop fans in general, which is Jack Antonoff, producer to many of our listenership's favorite stars, I know, and a topic of searing debate, I feel, on the internet about whether he is, as I was just mentioning to you off mic, friend or foe. I think there's been a lot of feeling of sort of outpouring in love for Jack throughout the last 10 years of pop in the sense that he seems to be a go-to sounding board slash sound crafter for a lot of, as I said, pop's favorite alt girlies from Lana to Claro to Lord, and then of course to like bigger stars like Taylor Swift. And then there's also this feeling I think that's set in over the last few years of sort of Jack fatigue, a feeling that he's kind of the only person that a lot of our favorite female stars go and work with. And then of course, you enter the chat because you wrote a piece in The Drift a couple of weeks ago, maybe maybe a month or so ago at this point, maybe longer than that, maybe six weeks ago, I don't remember, but recently called Dream of Antonification, Pop Music's Blandest Prophet. And it was a topic of hot debate on at least my Twitter feed the, <laughs> in the few days after it came out. But I thought it was so smartly written and sort of lays out sort of what Jack does as a producer that might make him the subject of ire or might make him someone that, I don't know, is perhaps less deserving of some of like the accolades that have been heaped on him over the last period of time or the ubiquity that he's experienced over time or perhaps maybe more accurately how that ubiquity reflects like larger trends in the way that we consume music, the way that pop music sounds that maybe is like slightly depressing. That was the vibe that I got from your <laughs> from your piece. Do you want to just talk a little bit about like what inspired you to write such a thoughtful and thoroughly researched and thought out piece about kind of how Jack reflects the current moment in pop? Well, thank Thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I like a lot of people in this kind of like a later slice of millennial micro generation, like mm -hmm. had definitely been aware of Jack Antonoff predominantly as a member of fun. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, we'll get into the into the nuts and bolts of his career later, I'm sure. And I, I may be preempting some of this discussion a little bit, but just to kind no, of no, like a unfold. Away, yeah, away. yeah. Just to yeah. unfold kind of like the arc, like, you know, we are young. I first heard that song in a, that Super Bowl commercial and then it completely dominated the radio mm. for the next like year, it seems to me. As I do, I looked up who the guitar player is. Like, oh, who's this guy? That he's <laughs> <laughs> who's this guy who plays the kind of interesting guitar solo in some nights. And then the Bleachers record came out. First, I thought Bleachers was a fun side project, and now now yeah, it's right. funny seeing people like on Twitter being like, "Wait, Jack Antonoff was in Fun? Like, it was mm. like a totally it's a different uh, generational perspective." But sure. you know, but then he the name started coming up more and more and more, and um, I realized that the name was coming up in association with records that to me, all had a kind of similarity to them in a way that it, that kind of disturbed me on some mm. level. Anytime mm. it seemed like between, let's say, 2017 and now, when there's like a new alt-pop type record that comes out that has a certain kind of emotional quality that's like weirdly over-emotive and shouty, but at the same time kind of anesthetized and dead inside mm. feeling, just at the <laughs> at the broadest level of vibes and first impressions. Like, you know, I would go to Wikipedia and sure enough, it would be Jack, mm. you know, at the helm producing mm. it. I just became curious, you know, like, who is this person? What is his approach to production? And of course, there's been a lot of really great journalistic work done, you know, people talking to him, people talking to the artist who he's worked with to kind of get the details on how he works. But then the next step where I, I think that a critical essay is the best way to kind of grapple with these questions. It's like, as you as you were saying, Louis, like, what does it mean that this is the super producer of 
this particular slice of pop now like mm. what happens if we treat him as a symptom of what's going on more broadly in the music industry the shifts in the distribution and channels of, of listening to music and the ways that stuff has gotten monetized and demonetized and the sorts of stuff that artists have to do in order to make a living mm. can we read him as symptomatic of these shifts and i have to say like just <laughs> i've been telling people this like the piece that i wrote like in in some ways is like an experiment in, in position taking like extreme mm. position taking like you know mm. you can write like a really thoughtful even-handed treatment but i thought that just like it would be a worthwhile experiment to just go full on not full-on hater but like uh, make the case against make the case mm. for him as a symptom and one thing that i discovered as i was making the playlist of everything that he has ever had a hand in which is like almost mm. 24 hours of music <laughs> wow. as far as i can tell it's an insane amount of music you have to put, yeah. tip your hat to him for being so productive yes. is that i found it really hard at times to hold on to that antipathy that initial antipathy that got me curious about this i found myself almost gaslighted like wait <laughs> is this deserving of a takedown like maybe i actually like jack like this music is like browbeating me in some kind of mm. way but ultimately mm. i decided that the way to write the essay was to write against that to summon some of the critical energy to fight off that creeping the music was trying to accustom me to it almost and mm. I, I was trying to like hold it at arm's length but that's my impressionistic tour of how it came to be yes that's so fascinating it makes me i mean there's a number of questions i want to ask you but one of which is are you responsive to sort of a feeling in the ether of overpraise of jack because my yeah. my sense with jack has been that there's kind of like a polarity in feeling towards him. And I think some of it is like a reflection of the way Stan culture functions, like in yes. the sense that like a lot of the artists that he works with, whether that be Taylor or Lana or Lord or whomever, come complete with a army of devotional stands yes. who praise and buttress everything they do without a ton of critical thought. And in that sense, there's a community of people that, Stan Jack blindly as like clearly somebody that their fave loves to work with, right? Like that's yeah. a sense that I get from a lot of Taylor fans. If you come out against Jack, and again, there obviously are segments of all of these fan bases that will kind of go against Jack or say Taylor needs to move on from working with Jack or right. Lana needs to move on with from working with Jack. But I feel like there's a large swath of people for whom standing means blindly sort of supporting whatever makes their artist feel good or whatever. And so that segment of the population sort of loves Jack. And also I think there's sort of a feeling that Jack is a, pop producer but he's not max martin and he's not dr luke in many ways in the sense that he's not svengali-ish as you point out in your piece and also in the sense that he warps himself around artists as opposed to like imposing his view on them yeah. and then of course that he's sort of like a nice guy and a good guy to work with right like a guy that respects and allows the the mainly female artists that he works with to sort of lead the way and be the kind of main voice in the room in a way that like has not historically been the way producers work as you lay out in your piece and then it feels like on the flip side there's like a lot of hate and ire directed at him from people that feel his ubiquity is irritating that feel as your piece goes to great lengths to sort of illustrate that there's sort of like a mushiness or a lack of perspective in his production work. So it feels like there's these polarities. So I'm wondering in your sort of idea to sort of present this as more of like a takedown, what were you responding to in the ether exactly? Like what made you feel like that was necessary? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. The Stan poll was definitely something yeah. whose presence I felt very powerfully in the ether, as you say. Yeah. It's interesting the ways in which, and uh, we can kind of get into this, like Jack, I think is a very savvy modern artist in that he understands that, you know, the record industry, the recording industry, it wasn't what it was in the 70s in the sense that you can't just like secure a bunch of money to produce this immaculate musical work and then expect right. the A&R people, the promo people at the label, et cetera, to just kind of like do their mm. thing and make it take. Like he mm. has to take an active role in promoting his music. And a big part of that is, you know, putting himself out there as a figure who encourages these kinds of maybe parasocial <laughs> identifications. Mm. I mean, there's lots of wonderful videos of like on the Bleachers YouTube channel, for instance, of him in his bedroom making beats and like showing right. you from scratch how he made a song like I want to get better. Hey, I'm Jack and we're at my house. We're in Brooklyn and I'm going to show you guys how I make the songs. So first one that we're going to work on is I want to get better. So I want to get better started. Um, 
I was in Malaysia and I played just a few notes on a piano and then it made me, you know, they kind of like sounded crappy and I, I put them into my iPhone and I put the iPhone in the NPC and those piano notes were originally lower but then I pitched them up so originally they sounded more like like that and I recorded it off my iPhone and then I got four of them and I pitched them all up. So I remember I was messing around just with like those and then eventually led to that pattern which is this. And he also right. has this, I mean, I think this is kind of maybe influence of his ex, Lena Dunham, but he has this like mm. weird sketch comedy <laughs> series. And it's like all of it presents him as this very goofy, but lovable, mm. relatable kind of guy. Mm. And I think mm. that image does him favors. It works to his benefit and makes him standable, makes him seem mm. accessible in mm. a certain kind of way. So I was definitely responding to that. I think that the release of Midnight's was mm. what made me think feel that we had reached a level of jack saturation hitherto unknown jack levels <laughs> off the charts <laughs> um, and and you've said you've i know you've written this uh, something to similar about taylor swift in, in the past you pointed this out that like you mm. know there are these artists that you think they can't possibly get any bigger and then they mm. do get bigger and i had the sense that maybe jack had reached a saturation point after which, you know, this particular lane of radio pop could no longer sustain any more Jack. And then Midnight's came out, which is all Jack. And I would argue the yes. most Jackified Taylor album, yes. like right. unquestionably. Kind of parentheses derogatory. <laughs> yes, very much so derogatory. Yeah, right. Yes, I do not right. think it is her strongest album. I think that was a trigger for a new wave of backlash. And the funniest bit of that backlash was this viral video of someone. You see this? You see this video, right? Yes, of the, yeah, where they're yeah. going through Taylor songs and like identifying which ones are Jack. Yeah, so in the style of those GeoGuessr videos, like, you yeah, see the yeah, videos yeah. of the GeoGuessr guy who's like, yeah. he's like, oh, that's Burkina Faso. Like, I'm just yeah, seeing yeah, like yeah, one yeah, square yeah, yeah. Uh, Guessing whether or not Jack Antonoff produced a song as quickly as possible. That's him. Yep. It might not be. No, that's him. <laughs> Maybe it's staged, who knows? But it's a crazy feat. Like this guy listening to the first couple of seconds of each of the songs off Midnight's and saying, that's him. <laughs> or, or, yeah, or right. oh, that's not him. What makes him so instantaneously identifiable? All of this, this whole zeitgeist was swirling around. I wanted to write an essay just as an excuse to just kind of mm. like think through yeah. what's going on there. Yeah. You say in the piece, which I thought was a really interesting quote, it's something you say kind of up top. If there was a producer who fully belonged to this moment, he would need to be something like a non-brand brand, paradoxically recognizable for his ability to produce stylishly forgettable content. In the preferred euphemistic terms of the ruling class, he would be less an innovator than a curator, a bright color of cultural tidbits endowed with impeccable taste and kitsch and the classics alike. His persona would be humble or sincere or exuberant in a muted sort of way like someone shouting as he recedes down a hallway <laughs> he would be impossibly versatile aware of all hats capable of working in seemingly any style he would be wildly successful by the standards of commerce views streams dollars and by those of professional taste making glowing reviews from critics fawning profiles by journalists ubiquitous and ignorable critically acclaimed and terminally unhip memeable but unshakably serious such a figure would fully express the essence of a seemingly essenceless moment. I thought that was a very well said and interesting sort of foray perhaps into this conversation and presents like a question that I have for you, which is I feel like one of your critiques in the piece is that he's sort of essenceless or you kind of put him up against other producers of the past, like a Quincy Jones or a Max Martin or a Teddy Riley or whomever, and sort of say that like, he's kind of lacking in a sense of like personal stamp or impromptor as like a producer. And yet, as you just mentioned, his style seems instantly recognizable in the sense that that meme presents it. Like, how do you view those two things as working simultaneously to each other? I mean, to me, right, that's the paradox that like, once you have a paradox like that, then it's like, I need to write an essay to figure out what, yeah. what on earth is yeah. going on here yeah. i do think that's at the heart of it and i think 
that on the anonymous side to impressionistically report my experience of listening to this 24 hour playlist <laughs> of Jack music. Yeah. You know, yeah. I listen to the music in real life, what I would call real life listening scenarios, which is like distracted mm. listening, you know, mm. while I'm walking to the grocery store, while I'm running other errands, while I'm doing the dishes, whatever, you know, Jack mm. is there in my mm-hmm. ears, mm-hmm. expelling his ink like cloud of vibes. Right. Like Spotify <laughs> core, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And there's yeah. a way in which I think that his music or music that he has some hand in is very suited for. Mm. There's a kind of blurriness and a kind of haziness Mm. to the sonic choices that he makes and the kind of overall sonic architecture or lack thereof maybe Mm. that he kind Mm. of, I won't say imposes, but brings to the projects Mm. that he works on. It kind of presents itself as this kind of musical penumbra to envelop you while you're doing your stuff Mm. at the far hazy edge of your awareness. And then every Mm. once in a while, maybe a hook will poke through and you'll be like, oh, that's a chorus. And then it'll kind mm-hmm. of recede back. That's like maybe like the phenomenological account of his ignorability mm. or featurelessness. But the other side of it is you read interviews with Jack and you read interviews with artists that he's worked with. And it's very clear that the way that he tries to approach production is as a collaboration rather than as, you know, there are certain producers who present themselves as corporate functionaries who are selected mm. by the label to guarantee a hit. And they're going to kind of impose a certain sound on the artist, whether mm. they like it or not. Jack presents himself as a collaborator. He wants mm. to, you know, bounce ideas back and forth. There's lots of videos of him doing this with Taylor Swift, among other right. artists. I'm in a getaway car. Oh! And I'm losing my... Something. Think about the... Yeah, a, I'm in a getaway car. And, and you're, you're in the motel bar. Or like... Yeah, I'm in, I'm in the getaway car, left you in the motel bar, took the money... Took the money in the bag and I stole the money. Took the money in the bag and I stole the keys. keys. That was the last time you ever saw me. Ah! That was the last time you ever saw me. The the positive way of putting this point about Jack is that he's like a musical chameleon. He can do an album like Mass Seduction, Saint Vincent. And then turn around and do something very much not funky, like Norman fucking Rockwell. That's the real foil there. I've been tearing around in my fucking account, 24-7 Sylvia Plath. Both because he is the same person and because there are these kind of structural forces that he is giving voice to and channeling kind of inevitably and perhaps unconsciously in his work. Mm. There's a thing that comes out in Mm. all of this work, however varied it is on some level. I mean, sometimes I've found myself torn and I guess by this paradox because, and I think your piece does a good job of laying this out, which is like, there are modes of Jack production. I mean, you kind of denote two. And to me, I sort of see him as like, he can sort of either be imposing or like shape himself around the artist. And I think the impositional version of Jack was something that happened more earlier in his production style. So you lay this out, it's kind of like arena rock of the 80s, like stripped for parts. It's like Bruce Springsteen, like taken into the junkyard. You've got the sort of, I want to get better as the template that sort of like informs songs like Out of the Woods or, you know, I Wish You Would from Taylor Swift's 1989. Spare percussion, like sort of drum machine driven, anthemic 80s synth sort of Springsteen nodding vibes, like big epic choruses, skeletal 80s rock slash synth pop production, right? Right. Like that, I I think Out of the Woods is pretty much like the apex version of that is, and and, you know, Out of the Woods has informed a lot of the songs that he makes with Taylor. That has been the template, you know, I think you can sort of trace Out of the Woods through Getaway Car on Reputation to Cruel Summer on Lover to like almost everything on Midnight's. It's like this kind of like 90 to 100 BPM, like the drum machine and the synthesizer cut in with these big anthemic or at least reaching towards anthemic or ideas of anthemic kind of choruses going on. And then you've got something like 
the work he does with Lana, where it's like, who is Jack in the mix there? Those are Lana songs that he's obviously like shepherding along as sort of like a ghost in the machine in a way. Yeah. So do you sort of see it that way where there are certain moments? Because if you're sort of thinking of the guy listening to Midnight to be like, Jack, not Jack, Jack, not Jack, whatever. Like there's obviously a way in which like you hear that opening scuzzy drum machine and you're like, there's Jack. And then there's a way in which you listen to Norman fucking Rockwell and you're like, these are beautifully produced songs in many instances, but like, what is Jack's role in this exactly? Like he just sort of has shifted and shaped himself around Lana's aesthetic. Is that is yeah. that an accurate kind of reflection of how you see it? No, I think that's a great way of putting it. And I appreciate that you're pushing back a little bit against the characterization that Jack offers of himself to the world. Right. Like, you know, right. you know, because I think that he wants people to view him as a, as a musical chameleon. He doesn't want to be right. viewed as this kind of dominating force. Well, and let, let me just add one thing, which is that yeah. perhaps Taylor got in at such a ground floor level with him as a producer that perhaps that is more identifiable as her sound than his at this point. I yeah. don't know, like that kind of clattering sound. Maybe, I don't know. It's not like those Bleacher songs were particularly huge. So perhaps no. to the world, the sort of out of the woods Jack aesthetic is viewed as a Taylor thing. I don't know. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, it's interesting how, uh, you know, like who owns a sound, right? I mean, like right. just like factually, there are so many people involved in these different things. To be totally frank, like, you know, a lot of big Jack songs that are people, me included, view as emblematic of his production style are co-produced, right? So, right. you know, so there are lots of questions that you can ask about that. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that there is a dominating Jack mode or like a Jack mode right. where Jack's like, I know what to do. Maybe that's the right. way to put it. He's like, ah, like he has a stock set of go-to tools. Mm. Oh, this is a song about uncertainty or anxiety. We want to conjure an atmosphere mm. of tension in some way. Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll have that mm. low, murky, but weirdly like bass cut kick drum thing. And then mm. I'll hit him with the Tarzan yells. <laughs> <laughs> This is not original to Jack. I mean, I think of fleeting radio hits of the 2010s. Like, remember that song Gold by Kiara? Of course, absolutely. What an incredible song. I will go yeah, to that, that for that song. There was like a moment where like, a bunch of top 40 artists seem to be leading on a kind of production that took chopped up bits of vocals and like scrambled bits of vocals and kind of like pushed them into the background as a textural element almost. And then that kind of seemed to fall off. But Jack right. is the one person who's still holding the candle for the Tarzan right. yells and chopped up vocals. I mean, I mean, right. you see, I mean, Midnight Rain, right? Midnight Rain right. is the real, that weird formant shifted, right? Is that mm -hmm. the way to say it? Mm -hmm. Formant shifted voice mm -hmm. as a textural element in the background. He wanted a comfortable, I wanted the pain. He wanted a bride, I was making my own name. Chasing that fame, he stayed the same. All of me changed like midnight. There's a Jack trick bag, and I think that sometimes he's hired to play the hits. Sometimes he is hired mm. to do the Jack trick bag. I mean, the Pitchfork mm. review of Arizona Baby, Kevin Abstract, formerly of Brockhampton, mm. being the one kind of hip-hop album that Jack has mm. had the biggest hand in mm. working on. Apparently, I think it was either the artist or someone else who was involved in the project, like, heard Norman fucking Rockwell and heard Venice Bitch in particular and was like, oh mm. my God, we need that sound. Actually, it's funny, the, the writer of this Pitchfork review and I came to this conclusion <laughs> independently that that album is like 10 tracks of Venice Bitch. But in that case, like he was hired to give them Venice Bitch and he was like, all right, fine, right. I'll get out the Fender Mustang, I'll pick behind mm. the bridge mm. for the, that kind of textural harp-like mm. thing and have it droning mm. and swirling in the background. Mm. Uh, mm. So there's a way in which he is, maybe he's imposing because he has a limited, like we all do as finite human beings, stable of creative gestures to draw on. Maybe he's actually being hired as a kind of gimmick guy mm. to do a, a sort of stunt production on some scale. But for whatever reason, yeah, no, I think you're right that there is the mode where Jack does the Jack thing. Right. I mean, it's also really interesting. I hadn't thought of this until you were talking right now, but you were talking about the Kiara song and, you know, Jack's music is often like pretty devoid of hip hop. And actually I noticed yes. like even when Taylor's music like wants to incorporate elements of hip hop, like there'll often be additional producers brought into the mix. Like that guy Soundwave yes. appears on a lot of like the trappier sounding Taylor songs 
songs, like whether it's like London Boy, you can see that he kind of leans on somebody else. But another producer that you made me think of that I feel like weirdly like shares some DNA with Jack, but also who has a very identifiable style. I mean, this is a way out there. So just rock with me for a second is DJ Mustard, who kind of like stripped G-Funk for parts in the mid 2000s and created this kind of skeletal drum machine driven music. Of course, that was Rack City. Yes, exactly. Like Rack City. Rack City, bitch. Rack, Rack City, bitch. Rack City, bitch. Rack, Rack City, bitch. Rack City, bitch. Rack, Rack City, bitch. 10, 10, 10, 20s and the 50s, bitch. Or Two On by Tanache or that Jeremiah song, Don't Tell Him. I mean, there's like a number of songs that are, they're kind of iterations on the same formula over and over again, but they sort of share that sort of like stripping a lusher sound for parts and kind of like creating music in this sort of like specific tempo range and like really driven by these like percussive elements. So if they're talking about the Jack style of like the out of the woods Jack style, I do feel like there's like a connection between out of the woods and Rack City. <laughs> like I, I, I can't love totally. that. Rack <laughs> yeah. City is one of my 2010s pop obsessions. Yes. I like yes. that's like yes. perpetually playing in my head. Right, right, <laughs> right. Well, and then, you know, and also someone with a pretty limited bag of tricks too, yes. who like yes, ultimately yes. like kind of played that style out and then yeah. wasn't able to find necessarily something else. Although Jack's had a much longer and more varied career. I guess my question that I want to ask you is, and maybe this can lead us into a discussion of like how Jack became the sort of producer du jour of the last 10 years. But like, how is what Jack does here in your mind different than Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis or Max Martin or Quincy Jones or Teddy Riley or Glenn Ballard or whomever the other people. Ryan Tedder, right, yeah. Ryan Tedder, Stargate. How is what Jack's doing different from those producers and how is it reflective of what the music marketplace demands at this time? Yeah, right, great question. So I almost think about this question in terms of like the genre system Mm. in Mm. the pop music sphere Mm. you know with the full understanding that genre is kind of eroding in the streaming environment as you know like the most salient way to categorize music but like i think that jack's production on the most basic level constitutes a sonic bridge between the aesthetics of 2010s to 2020s top 40 pop and on the other hand something like the residual aesthetics of indie rock Mm -hmm. aughts indie rock in particular Mm -hmm. like i mean Mm -hmm. so certainly the jack stuff strips springsteen and a kind of 80s arena rock type sound for parts Mm -hmm. but it's almost like he does that filtered through a later Mm -hmm. moment a Mm -hmm. lot of the earlier jack stuff seems to be interested in cannibalizing the sounds of a kind of blog rock or pitchfork mm-hmm. rock of mm-hmm. the odds, for lack right. of a better term. Right, you know, like so- you bring up Grizzly Bear. Grizzly Bear, right, yes. The plink plink piano thing, the mm. fundamental trick of We Are Young, not that Jack produced mm. it, it was mm. Jeff Bosker. But Jeff feels like an antecedent and someone who's influenced ja- uh, he Jack. He does sound. feel like an antecedent, absolutely. Yeah, so you take the plink plink from the Grizzly Bear song and you set it to these crushing drums and that's it. What Jack does is he kind of frees these elements, these stylistic elements. I mean, the yelping vocals, kind of like an Isaac mm. Brock, Mouse type yelping mm. vocal approach. is an antecedent for how he approaches his own vocal performance Mm -hmm. in Bleachers. These were stylistic elements that belong to a sub world of music with its own Mm. institutions, its own scene, its own Mm. kind of maybe you could say snobby rockist kind of Mm. ethos at its Mm. worst. And he kind of detaches them and liberates Mm. them from that specific embedding and Mm. links them up to top 40 pop. You look at the lane, I mean, you you said the alt pop girlies earlier. Like, I mean, Mm. you look at the lane of artists that he is primarily known for working with as a Mm. producer. It Mm. is artists who kind of straddle this line between Mm. pop and something like Mm. alternative rock. I mean, Mm -hmm. like Lana Del Rey in some ways was like maybe one of the first artists to really open up that niche on on this big level. And Lord in her way too. And Lord, absolutely. Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three. Yes, 
three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today. You know, we talk a lot on the podcast about like sort of the shifting imperatives on pop stardom, which I think is in an entirely novel place right now that has sort of developed in the wake of Lana and Lord. And maybe listeners will be sick of me talking about, but I think it's instructive to dealing with why perhaps Jack is the producer of the moment, which is that I think pop stardom for at least most of the sort of like post-1980s sort of early MTV generation of pop stars, Prince, Madonna, Michael, George, Michael, like that generation of pop stars, I think essentially set the template for how pop stardom works through the present day in many ways, but certainly like through the, the next 30 years, let's say. And I think the main way that that churned, aside from all the other elements, the videos, the visual element of the whole thing, the live performances, whatever, the concept albums, was that you essentially fostered a pop career on the back of like a bulletproof hit singles that were like one after the other, after the other, after the other. I mean, you look at the way we sort of think about who successful pop stars were in the 1980s and through to the Britney era and even through the Gaga kind of Katie moment in pop. And it's like, who can string together the biggest run of number one hit singles? Like that is how pop stars sort of operated. And in such, you had to come up with big tent, big appealing, mass appeal pop singles over and over and over again. That was kind of like the currency of pop music. That's that's what allows a Max Martin to be such a dominant force for 20 years is that that's what he was great at is like creating incredibly broad, mass accessible pop singles that were just undeniable to the widest swath of people. I think what's happened in the sort of post Lana Lord and sort of rise of streaming ecosystem is that that is not really the function of pop stardom anymore. Pop stardom is not about stringing together big hit singles. You look at Taylor Swift even, who is undoubtedly the biggest pop star on the planet, and there's really one true bona fide smash from Midnight's, right? Like obviously other singles have done well in the charts because of the way the charts work with streaming and blah, 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 blah. But in terms of like a multi-format, you know, smash, you have Antihero and that's kind of like the calling card of Midnight's. You look at other big albums from Lizzo to Harry Styles, like they kind of get off one big single and the rest of it doesn't matter because there's these giant cults of personality that form around these artists and what yeah. the big, but also sort of niche fan base wants is a feeling that they're following their artistic muse, they're making their idiosyncratic music, they're getting some sort of personal reflection from the artists that they stand, and it's less about creating seven multi-format smash singles as it might have been on like Control or Rhythm Nation 1814 or Bad or Like a Prayer or whatever, like, or even Teenage Dream or The Fame Monster. So in a sense, It's like the pursuit of pop stardom is about feeding your giant cult the feeling that they're getting something intimate from you and less about creating multi-format, bulletproof, accessible smash singles. And so in a way, Jack to me maybe suits this moment in the sense that like, because he's branded himself as like the, I'm the artist that allows these people to be who they want to be and I'm not trying to Svengali them and I'm not here to impose my version of songcraft on them necessarily. That makes him weirdly suited to this vibe. Like the fans want to believe that the artist is in there and they are the main driving force of their music and the the fact that these stars are not necessarily chasing hits is more appealing to them. Like you think about a Billie Eilish who does not work with Jack but has a similar arrangement where she's got her brother, there's rarely ever anybody else in the mix. I think that's been such an integral part of her stardom is like Billie Eilish doesn't really need to string together seven number one songs from an album to feel like she's the biggest pop star on earth. It's all about feeling like she's idiosyncratic and she's not, you know, making concessions to have radio hits like that actually helps her pop stardom in a weird way so i wonder if that's part of what makes jack and his sort of malleability and chameleonic vibe sort of well suited to this moment 
in some ways, in addition to sort of the Spotify cornice of what he does aesthetically. Yeah, unquestionably, unquestionably. And yeah, no, and as you as you were kind of laying all that out, I started to wonder, like, are there big singles from Renaissance, right? Like, I, I haven't really heard from the, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, know that Beyonce is on this massive, right, massive right, tour, but... Right. Yeah, I mean, there are, but at the same time, they're not in the same way that there was in, like, uh, from Dangerously in Love or whatever. Right, yeah, exactly. And then I started to wonder, like, who's the last, like, this is taking us far afield, but you just piqued my curiosity. Now, like, who is the last like pop superstar to really like operate at that elite like seven number one singles level? And like, my first thought is like Rihanna. Like, is that Rihanna? Yeah, Rihanna, Katie Gaga. I think Ariana had a good run yeah, like, kind of towards true. the end of the 2010s. But it's that's just true. a rarer. It's a mode that appears to be out of steam, and it's yeah. like, and it feels unnecessary because I think that you can sort of sustain careers big and small off of cult. Phenomenons. I mean, yeah, we yeah, also yeah. talk about stars like on the show a lot that are also adjacent to the Jack universe or people that have even worked with him like Carly Rae Jepsen mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. have no radio hits, who have no successful singles and like don't even sell a ton of records but just sort of like have this cult sort of following and tour and that's like a version of pop stardom, right? Like, yeah, no, yeah, like, yeah. like 90% or 95% of the populace will never hear or don't even know that they're making music still and that's fine. And then you just have that operating at larger scales with people like Billy. Eilish, you know, obviously I think another sort of counter to this would be Olivia Rodrigo, who seems to mm-hmm. be tossing off like a number of hit singles in a row or Dua Lipa's last record had a lot of hits on it. But like, you know, for the most part, there's a large swath of pop stars for whom fans want to feel that getting personal idiosyncratic reflections from them is more important than sort of Max Martin style bulletproof hook making producer impromptor yeah. style is important. I think maybe yeah. that's part of the reason Jack has suited this moment so well. Unquestionably, yeah. I mean, kind of like the values of of intimacy and identification and being seen, the idea of your pop idol being responsive to you in Mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. way. All of that, I think that's true. That's so spot on that that is kind of like this emerging controlling structure or like template for a kind of pop fame. And it makes me think of, and I, I try to draw something like this comparison in the piece, I think maybe in a slightly different context, but it makes me think of a wonderful book that I recommend to everyone. Everyone's probably sick of me recommending this book, Everything and Less, The Novel in the Age of Amazon by Mark McGurl. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the change that the figure of the author, the role of the author has undergone in this environment where mm-hmm. a small number of digital platforms platforms monopolize the distribution of the artistic product, right? And Mm. where he lands on that is that the author is kind of cast as a service provider Mm. to the readers, to the fans. And I think that there's a direct analogy to pop stars. I think that Taylor Swift is the ultimate, maybe this will get me in trouble, but I'm just going to say it. Like Taylor Swift, like is the ultimate figure of the pop star as service provider. Like she Mm. is playing every one of her songs on this tour. Mm. She (laughs) responds to internet Swifty gossip Mm. and drama Mm. on stage, from stage. Mm. Like the first Mm. night of the Eras tour where she was like, some of you like to tease me about how you think that I don't like Evermore, (laughs) but I love Evermore. Like it's like (laughs) she is providing a kind of social bond, a parasocial bond as a service. Mm. But I think actually, I mean, you would want to nuance that and say that she kind of has this hard and shiny aspect to her persona maybe as thematized in all of her lyrics about glitter, that is kind of like an impersonal, self-protective shell counterpart to this armor that she has to put on to prevent herself from totally succumbing to these demands to be a service provider to her stands Mm. 24-7. But anyway, to bring it back to Jack, it is true that Jack is an especially well-suited producer and collaborator for this moment where the default route to pop stardom isn't the incredible run of number one singles. And I think Mm. that you can hear that in the music that he works on chiefly, and this is a controversial thing. A lot of people think that Jack is a hook forward writer and producer. I don't think he is at all. I think that you listen to a Bleachers album. What do you remember from that? Nothing, nothing. He has no interest really in melody, I think, or real knack for it. What he provides is texture and mood. What what I I would just insert there is that maybe that speaks to the broader sense of sort of malleability because yeah. when the music is hook driven perhaps that is more a reflection of who he's working with like if he's yes. working with Taylor Swift who is a hook driven artist perhaps she's the one that's providing the hooks to the music and it's not really oh, yeah. him 
have. Oh, yeah. unquestionably, yeah. Which makes it all the more obvious when she kind of like has a little bit of a weaker song and he's working yeah. on it. So something like yeah. Maroon, something mm. like Out of the Woods. I know that a lot mm. of people, a lot of people are very unhappy with me for calling Out of the Woods tuneless. But that <laughs> those verses are basically her talking. And she was like, oh yeah, mm. let's put some notes in the major scale to, just to say that Melody is, it's certainly not his strong suit. That approach works in an era where you don't have to have this insidious, insistent earworm hook anchoring mm. your mm. chart dominating, right. you right. know, 20 weeks at number one right. song. Right. You can create the mood pieces. Mm. Maybe there's something about the mood pieces, vibes. even though as the vibes, right. if you will, the vibes based pieces yeah. that even as they're kind of impersonal and floaty kind of maybe encourage that identification and fan intimacy. This is something across media. This happens in writing too. Anything that's hazy and vibey, people think, oh, that's artistic, right? Like that's like a- <laughs> Or personal. Or personal. Or, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I actually think it serves pop stars in some weird way these days to not sound like they're gunning for four quadrant radio hits. Like yes. it serves the feeling, as you're mentioning, of sort of feigned intimacy between artist and cult standvase. Like yeah. that is like kind of the churning imperative for pop stardom these days. Like, and I find that completely fascinating because also I think that's a reflection of the way that we consume music, which goes back to what you were talking about, which is like, you know, the way that these artists are making money is by touring. Who goes to tours? The diehards, the people that are willing to spend $500 to see Beyonce or Taylor yeah. Swift. Even Taylor Swift, who is the biggest record seller probably in existence today, is still not moving records on the level of, you know, the way that we used to sell albums, which was a huge profit point yes. for artists. Yes. So creating seven four quadrant hit singles on an album was important to their bottom line in a way that it just isn't anymore. Like you have a large group of stands, if you're Taylor Swift, who will know every word to every album she puts out. It doesn't matter whether the songs are hits or not. I remember when when I saw the Eras tour it was before kind of the cruel summer reignited thing had fully taken off yes. and it was the song that opened the show and at that point you know again it was before this had you know now Cruel Summer is from 2019 is a currently a top five hit but at that moment it wasn't and it was the biggest reaction of the night because yeah. all of the stands and the audience like loved Cruel Summer and had wanted Cruel Summer to be a hit so it just spoke to to me I was like damn this song went off bigger than like Shake It Off you know a, a, a bona fide four quadrant hit so Cruel Summer a Jack production of course you know it was reflecting to me of like how pop stardom is working these days which is that like she's there as you said to provide fan service to the diehards who are spending $500 to be there she doesn't need seven number one songs that more people are casual fans of she needs like the core audience to sort of just be there which which will be there kind of for anything that she does yeah absolutely no I noticed that too I noticed that too when I saw that I did well I tried to see the Eras tour but I got shut out of the ticket marketplace so I, I ended up watching uh, my local show via live stream and I also noticed that for Cool yeah. Summer yeah. I wonder if there are specific artists or projects that you feel have been the most successful utilization of what Jack does or where Jack's style of sort of malleability or lack of mellow, whatever you want to say, reaches something approaching good to you. Yeah. And vice versa. Like, where do you feel like he has been the least successful over his sort of canonical run of albums over the last decade or so? Oh, great. Yeah. I have lots of thoughts about this. I definitely want to acknowledge that I think Jack has made some stuff that is genuinely awesome like cruel yeah. summer speaking of cruel yeah. summer i think mm. that is a fantastic pop Incredible. song Incredible. i think that is an explosive chorus i think mm. that everything about it sonically lyrically vocally it just it just works it just works on an even higher plane of the pantheon, if you will, would mm -hmm. have to be Norman fucking Rockwell. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that record, also 2019, by the way, I think. Yes, right. A banner year for Jack. It got pretty much universal praise. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many copies it sold, but as you point out, you know, like that's not necessarily no, not the main. That it was, it was critically adored, it was critically nominated adored. for album of the year at the Grammys, was, considered probably her best work by most listeners. Yes, and streamed mm -hmm. mass volume. I mean, that's just one of those albums where he was dialed in or he was especially responsive to this sweeping, comprehensive vision that Lana had. Mm. I don't really have a look behind the curtain of like mm. the division of labor on that one. Mm -hmm. I would be inclined to hand it much more to Lana than to Jack. Same. Same. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that, no matter what, that her music comes out sounding like Lana more so than anybody she ever collaborates with. Yeah, and no, exactly. She has one of those really strong visions that's not very easily mm -hmm. soluble. Yes, in, yeah. 
yes. any kind of the mixture of a collaboration. Mm -hmm. And why does it work? The mixture of a kind of 70s AM gold, latter day Laurel Canyon, mm -hmm, soft mm -hmm. rock, breeziness mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. these hyper modern observational lyrics, mm -hmm. but also with the continuation of the Lana Femme Fatale myth, self mythologizing mm -hmm. thing, but maybe a little bit dialed back from mm -hmm. earlier records. And the sonic signature of it, it has a warmth. Her vocals have a warmth. The instruments, breathe there are live drums on most of the tracks Like, Fuck It, mm -hmm. I Love You is mm -hmm. such a weird sonic misfire because mm -hmm. of the jack drums. I think we need to talk mm -hmm. about the jack drums. Like, that's mm -hmm. one of the things that I think he just constantly bungles. Like, his drums, and maybe this has to do with, like, him grasping for something that he thinks of as hip-hop, but without really an understanding of, like, how mm -hmm. hip-hop producers, actual hip-hop producers get those sounds. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but the jack drum machine sound is god-awful. Well, fascinated with drum machines of the 80s, too. I mean, yeah. I think of sort of, like, the way that sort of drum machines can be, like, a fascinating backbone to pop records like on Prince songs, for instance, you know, you listen to like yeah. a lot of Prince songs and it's like, they're completely centered around like clattering, purposefully artificial sounding Lindrum sounds, yeah. you know, like that's kind of like the Prince aesthetic and sort of like the warmth and humanity comes through Prince yes. in the sort of context of clattering, like overtly and proudly synthetic sounding and spares drum machine sounds, which I think is something that Jack is, as at least I think is something that he's trying to nod at a little bit. Because a lot of times those drum machines are there to sound like drum machines. Like they're there to have kind of like a synthetic percussive feel to them. There's like a, a hollowness in his drum sounds and the distance that, you know, needs to be filled up by some kind of source of mm. charisma, you know, and obviously, mm. like, when you're talking mm. about Prince, he's got yeah. it, but, 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 but <laughs> yeah, but, Prince is going, he, he's, he's I think got that's it. safe to say, but, I mean, too often, especially in his own songs, that the hollow drum yeah. machine sound is just, it ends up sounding either unintentionally hollow or symptomatically hollow, like, it's supposed to mm. be background music, soundtrack, mm. new movie soundtrack music, something you'd hear on an episode of Stranger Things and forget about yeah. for seconds after. <laughs> I think this is highlighting, you know, what makes Jack collaboration successful tends to be the other person coming yeah. in with real strong suits and very strong point of view. I mean, it yeah. sounds like if you're talking about Taylor, if you're talking about Lana, you're talking about two artists that are clearly walking into the studio and like have a lot to add to what Jack's doing, which stands in contrast, I think, to what makes like successful Max Martin songs, which is yeah. like Max Martin walks into a studio and it's like, for the most part, it's very clear what a driving force he is in almost every element of the song. And like, you kind of play. want yeah. that from a Max Martin song. Again, yeah. Taylor, I think, has has done very effective job of collaborating with Max Martin as well in the yes. sense that she doesn't get usurped by him. But a lot of artists that Max Martin works with, like, I don't have proof of this, but you get a large sense that like 95% of what's happening there is happening from Max you yeah, know, from, in, a, in a lot of instances. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to, I was just about to turn to the, it's like good that we're drifting in the direction of folklore because like a pure Taylor Jack collab, like somehow it's not because of the strength of the vision. Maybe it's because Taylor's fallen into a kind of groove with Jack or yeah, like right. he encourages a certain impulse of hers that needs to right. be pushed back against or leavened or tempered or a little bit. But for whatever reason, a pure Taylor-Jack collab doesn't do her music justice necessarily. Especially at this point, since we've seen all the tricks. And we've seen all like the tricks. We've seen every permutation. Some of the Jack stuff on Folklore, actually probably my personal favorite thing that Jack has had mm. a hand in is August. Yes. I think that's such a transcendent song. But I can see us lost in the memory August slipped away into a moment in time Cause it was never mine but kind of like Jack pulling from his Lana bag in some ways. I think it's Jack pulling from the Lana bag. And I'd also say that, like, I think that Aaron Dessner, like, is like the third point on the triangle in that album. And Taylor and Aaron, like, shaped the sound. And then Jack 
stepped in was like, oh, let's do some peppy versions of that. Like the coordinates had already been set. There's only so right. far that he could stray from them. So I think right. that he was reined in a little bit there that, and right. that set him up for success. The most pop anthem hit sounding song on a very restrained yeah. woodsy album. The cases where I think that Jack really did the artist a disservice. I think the mm. chicks is the saddest example. Mm. Mm. Man, it just makes me sad. That Gaslighter album. These people were icons. Absolute pop country Mm. icons not ready to make nice like Mm. such a conscience Mm. in a very jingoistic moment in the bush years and a very jingoistic like Mm. slice of the music Mm. industry and like just Mm. natalie mains what a talent and then they come back with this divorce album and first off i don't think the songwriting is very good on that album that Mm -hmm. that doesn't Mm -hmm. really have anything to do with jack i think that gaslighter is an extraordinarily cheesy song so Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. he didn't have the best material to work with necessarily right but again, kind of speaks to the, the overall thing we're poking at here, which is like Jack is almost only as good as what the other person is bringing to the table. He's never going to take something mid and vault it into right. the realms of This the feels essential. This really yes. feels essential. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's worth underscoring. His approach to that album is he couldn't decide whether he wanted it to be like a Roots album and give it mm. this kind of intimate folklore type treatment, mm. although that's kind of anachronistic to put it that way, mm. or whether mm-hmm. he wanted to push it into inspiration pop, Sarah Bareilles mm. brave <laughs> type territory. And he splits mm. the difference in a really awkward mm. way. can't really tell what distance the songs are at. Are they meant to be whispering in your ear from the front mm. porch late at night? Mm. Are they meant mm. to be issued from the dance floor? Mm. Like, yeah, it, mm. it's it's very unclear. You can't really place it. And it just fails by every measure, I think. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, another artist that we haven't talked about that I think sort of like represents both kind of like the greatest of the Jack stuff and then sort of a failure in one artist is Lord, because yeah. I think that in some ways, I think melodrama is like the prototypical Jack produced album. Absolutely. And I think was a record where he both molded himself to what Lord had done on the previous record in terms of, again, there are two artists that, at least on those records, traded in lots of sort of drum machine sounds, kind of clattering industrial production that was centered around synthetic percussion. But, you know, I think that, like, on Melodrama, I think he did a really nice job of kind of, like, expanding what Lord had done on her kind of, like, minimalist early work and creating something that felt sweeping and cinematic. It added a yes. lot to Lord, and I think they counterbalanced each other well. Like, Lord is another artist, I think, with the or who has in the past had a really strong point of view, is a good lyric writer, you know, and so together they came together to make one of my favorite of Jack's works, which would be Melodrama. And then on the flip side, you have Solar Power, where I feel like Lord's vision was kind of muddy. There was not a lot of like aesthetic vision, it felt like to me. It just kind of felt like mush. It felt like just sort of nothingness. And as a result, the record just like doesn't gel. She took like a more diffuse and impressionistic approach to writing Mm. songs, Mm. a less hooky approach to writing songs. And he just kind of like served, I think, as a negative force on that record. Because I think what she needed for Solar Power was someone that could kind of take whatever sort of back to nature, more impressionistic sort of style of songwriting and sort of give it a little bit more of like a shape, a little bit more of a point of view, a little bit more pop intuition. And instead he kind of like went with her down that rabbit hole and they came out with something I think pretty bad in my opinion. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I hate to play like Monday morning quarterback or whatever with these things, but like, yeah. what would a version of of Solar Power produced by like Jim O'Rourke sound like? Yeah, that literally. That begs right. for it has a maturity right. and and a right. sophistication like right. evinced in perspective that the songs are coming from. Even if and, the, and her know. impulse to evolve and change her songwriting approach, like I think, is a good one. It's just yes. that, like then you got to have somebody else in the room that's kind of helping craft that. I think it could have been a cool like a Wilco or Loose fur album with right. like the bleeps right. and bloops and kind of clouds right. of random noise right. but instead jack just kind of did the jack thing he was sitting in the corner as a vibe dispenser yeah. or he went on autopilot and was like oh yeah i got it i'll do the yeah. lana thing but happy yeah. like uh right you know right. and i think that I, I i do think that mood ring is a great song it in august have yeah, a lot ones of that like actually return to like hooky pop songwriting exactly work. And the one, right, right yeah and they're both i mean and they're both permutations of torn aren't they right. edna swap <laughs> and, and madeline brulia they're all in the key of f they they all have that yeah. loping drum beat. They all have the yeah, jangly yeah, yeah. guitars. Yeah, yeah, uh, so yeah. Really, it's it's stolen valor from Natalie and Bruglia. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think that there's like sort of two last things. One is something I want to highlight and one is something I want to ask you about. You know, I think we've sort of gestured at this, but I think in addition to sort of the way that Jack is servicing this new version of pop stardom that's not as sort of single driven and as you point out is kind of vibey driven, something that can sort of be consumed passively. You know, I think that's all made him really really well suited to this moment, but I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about sort of Jack as the ultimate post Me Too mm-hmm. pop producer in the sense mm-hmm. that like, you know, we're dealing with largely female collaborators that he he clearly is somebody that is favored largely by women or who favors women or, who you know, some combination of the two things. And that it's been important for pop fans to have their female faves working with somebody that they don't feel is Dr. Luke, as you point out, as kind of like an analog, someone who is a dick, misogynist, or, you know, allegedly, uh, you know, a sexual predator, yep. whatever. I think he's served as like a sort of narrative antidote to those things. And that's been really important, I think, to why he is beloved and why, you know, he's ubiquitous and why him being part of an artist's narrative like feels good to that artist's loyal fans. And I guess that leads to what would be my final question for you, which is that why is there this backlash? Like we've talked a lot about like why he functions well in this moment, even if maybe it's not our favorite aesthetic thing, why he sort of has served the moment well. And, you know, he's had a lot of success. You know, he's had on whatever scale the artist is dealing with, a lot of times Jack's work with them has been successful. So why do you think there has been either amongst fans of the artists that he works with or kind of like in the broader pop music politic, has there been this sort of feeling of late, maybe Midnight's being, I think you're rightfully kind of like a crystallizing moment of like enough of this. Like, where do you think that has come from exactly? What is driving that? So music listeners in general want hooks want music that has this kind of memorable insistent earworm quality mm-hmm. music that mm-hmm. has a kind of immediacy or or directness mm-hmm. like not that that's mm-hmm. an absolute value that should be pursued at all costs but i think mm. that there's a hunger for music that doesn't just kind of dispense an inky cloud of vibes mm. and mm. suggest mm. melodies without ever landing on something i think mm. people want mm. to bite into something satisfying and nourishing to their soul people want something other than that they don't just want that there's a place for that but that's not the only mode that pop and in particular this kind of like alt pop lane has to operate in there's other possibilities the other side of this gets back to what you were saying earlier in this new landscape where fans feel extra invested in like the artistic trajectory of their favorite artists you know fans want their favorite artists to evolve right. and explore right i think people right. are hungry for right. like new sounds right. I think and i think important. that this is a, a complaint that you'll see within the taylor swift fan community mm-hmm. like that there is as you as you alluded to earlier there is a contingent of swifties who are like enough jack antonoff already yeah and i think that you know this is maybe the nexus of a lot of the threads of the discussion that we've had because i mean jack can take mediocre material and present that mediocrity as an artistic choice mm, <laughs> um mm, like as a mm. oh i didn't want to make a great pop album i wanted to make a vibe right this is very solar power yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah this is very solar yeah, power yeah, yeah. it's a retcon yeah. but really you know right. there were artistic shortcomings there right. that were, got laundered and retcon right. his production choices yeah, yeah, yeah. and we know has established on the other hand that he can never make something sore that's like just good mm. or okay mm. there's a kind of compressing effect on the sonic and express 
expressive range mm. of the artists that he works with that Jack has. Mm. And, you know, there's the hyperbolic way to put that. It's like, oh, Jack is like homogenizing and like, yeah, that is true. I, I kind of prefer compressing as a term. The highest that you can go with Jack is like not as high as pop music could go. Mm. And his low is like, I guess it's not, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> but like the price of staying in that narrow band stylistically and in terms of quality and experimentation, I think is a pretty high price. Yeah. And I, I think the people are sensing that. Yeah, I think you totally nailed it in the sense that it's both this maybe pendulum swing as pop is wont to do to sort of like get very invested in a certain mode of music, a certain style of pop star, and then to sort of be like, okay, ne- we're kind of going to move in the opposite direction. It's like, it, yeah. it's inevitable. It happens every time. It's the same thing that swept in this wave of Jack, which was sort of a response to the maximalist EDM dance mm-hmm. pop, Max Martin, Red One, David Guetta moment in pop. Mm -hmm. And then perhaps 10 years on from that sort of shift, we're sort of like, okay, maybe Dua Lipa and her success and Renaissance and whatever success is that like there is this kind of move back towards a maximalism, towards a hookiness. And I think the other thing is the diversification. I think you sort of nailed it too, which is that as much as sort of like the, the fan base's investment in the artistic evolution of these artists and sort of feeling of intimacy in terms of their process and, you know, being part of the sort of evolution of these artists in a much deeper and more, in turns frightening, but I guess sort of interesting way in the modern pop ecosystem of social media and overstanding that goes on. Like perhaps there is this feeling of like, we want input too, and we want to see you evolve. We want to see this change. We want to, we just don't want, you know, what I think Midnight's registers as for me, which is just 12 more Jack and Taylor songs. You know, I think maybe it's within her own discography and then it's reflective of the bigger Jack sort of overutilization in pop at this moment, which is that like he represents a stagnant feeling that exists like throughout Taylor's music perhaps and perhaps in this sort of lane of pop that he's dominated there is a feeling of there's other people that could be fun to work with you know and so maybe that's the sort of give Jack a break kind of moment that we've reached and that's where it's coming from and I can't say that I disagree with that perspective myself (laughs) maybe as a last question you know we've talked about some of the music that you've liked I know Venice Bitch you feel like is maybe Jack's crowning achievement as a producer are there any other songs is there any songs that we could sort of like go out on a song that you just sort of think is a good iteration of the Jack thing that like we could just sort of send the, the show out on. Is this a bad answer to run it all the way back to Aim and Ignite? No, not like, at all. Uh, I think this is okay, great. Okay. That's great. Because Aim and Ignite is it's such a wonderful album. The, the first fun album mm. to continue this motif, you know, like Nate Roos was probably responsible for mm. more of that sound mm-hmm. than Jack was. Mm-hmm. But what a wonderful gift of an album to have. Mm. Songs like All the Pretty Girls mm-hmm. with this kind of queen, kind of like choral mm. vocal influence. Mm. But then also these really fun, like power pop guitars. Mm-hmm. You have to actually, you have to hand it to Jack. I don't normally find his guitar playing very compelling yeah. at all. I find it to be like kind of like an affected amateurish pose right. a lot of the time. But his he styled in on that album, right. man. Like his playing is great. Yeah. And it just works. It is such a quirky artifact. Mm. And then like no one involved in it ever did anything like that again. Mm. But like that's just kind of one of those now oldies been treasures that like you can look back and like, you know, Jack really elevated that. Yeah. Like, man, like that was a great Jack moment. So is there a particular song that you would pick as emblematic? I mean, the one that sticks out to me is All the Pretty Girls. All right, let's go out on All the Pretty Girls. Mitch Thoreau, this was incredibly fun. I really had a great time talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. I think it's striking me. All the pretty girls on a Saturday night.